0: Welcome back to EmigCast, your source for emergency medicine ideas, inspiration, and information for medical students. My name is Tristan Zimmerman, and I'm a second year medical student at Oregon Health and Science University in Portland, Oregon. This episode was very exciting for me as I was recording back in my hometown of Little Falls, Minnesota with doctors Heather Bell and Kurt Devine and registered nurse Erin Foss talking about their successes in reducing opioid dependence. So to begin, would each of you mind doing a little introduction about yourselves, um, where you did your education and training, and kind of how you got to where you are today, and what your job looks like now?
1: So I'm Heather Bell. I am from Minnesota, but I grew up in the Twin Cities. Did undergrad at Gustavus in med school in Duluth, and then did the Rural Physician Associate Program, so it's a nine-month program in your third year of med school where you can be out in greater Minnesota for nine months. And then... Graduated from the U and then did residency in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. And then finishing residency, came to Little Falls, started here in the fall of 2012, doing full spectrum family medicine. So at that point, just doing everything family medicine, deliver babies, procedures, and all of that. Started doing opioid work at the beginning of 2015 and started prescribing Suboxone or buprenorphine for the treatment of opioid use disorder in the summer of 2016. And so now my practice is still the exact same. I still do full spectrum family medicine, still deliver babies, but also take care of patients
2: with opioid use disorder. So my name is Kurt Devine. I'm a family physician here in Little Falls, Minnesota. I actually grew up north of here, near the headwaters of the Mississippi in Park Rapids, Minnesota. Um, I went to college at St. John's University in Collegeville, and then the University of Minnesota uh, for medical school, and also did my residency training a couple of years later than Dr. Later. Bell. Later.
1: Two decades earlier.
2: Uh, in uh, Ignore her. Um, did mine uh, as well in Sioux Falls, South Dakota in my family practice residency. Uh, I did obstetrics for about 20 years and have not done uh, that for about 10 years, but now again, our, like Dr. Bell, I'm doing buprenorphine in the last few years and my practice is otherwise full-spectrum with the exception of no OB. I'm
3: Erin Fuss, I am one of the RNs that works with our program. Um, Primarily my background is in OR and surgery, um, med-surg and oncology.
0: Okay, I suppose we can get into the meat of today's episode. So we're here to talk about the Minnesota Department of Health Opioid Prevention Project, which Little Falls and CHI St. Gabriel's is a project site for. So could you just give a little bit of an overview about the program and what made you interested in being involved?
1: So we are actually facilitating and running the program. And I think that is where it's a little bit different than the communities that are involved in our program. So, I mean, it all really started back when we got our original grant in 2015 to deal with opioids here in Little Falls. And so it began as us focusing on prescriptions and tapering of opioids here, which then addiction came from that. And so we were taking care of both of those things. But because the original grant in 2015 was a state grant, we had to give them all of the data. And they were kind of astonished by how good our data here in Little Falls was with all the prescription opioids um, being cut in half because of appropriate prescribing. And so they asked if we could do this outside of just Little Falls. So a couple of the legislators had gotten together and somehow we got funding to replicate ourselves in eight communities. And so there's eight communities across the state that we have directly mentored to do our program in their communities. And so they need to have a community task force, a community involvement like with their law enforcement school, social services, and all of that. They needed um, to have at least one doctor who was willing to prescribe buprenorphine or treat patients with opioid use disorder. They need to have a care team, so a nurse to help coordinate all these patients. Um, And then they needed to look at their prescribing habits and work on appropriate prescribing. So that started in May of 2018. We just wrapped up the year of that, I guess last summer.
2: Well, and and that program is actually still uh, expanding because we just got more funding and so we're actually adding four more communities all the way to the canadian border now Uh, they're going to be getting funding for this as well so uh, it's going to be 12 and we're actually going back to the legislature looking uh, to add more communities if possible so why did we get involved in this work
1: um so being much younger than kurt (laughs) this is fun (laughs) being much younger i my training was very different i went through training Not in the day where, you know, his generation was like, you have to prescribe, here's opioids, everybody should be treated with chronic pain because you're not going to get patients addicted. When I was in residency, we didn't learn a lot about addiction and opioids, but it was a lot more, you can use them, but let's try other options first. It was just not pushed on us. So when I started, my very first day in Little Falls was on October 10th of 2012. I don't know why I know that exact date. (laughs) But I was on call and I got all these prescription refills from a lot of my partners and it was refill this patient's 300 oxycodone and I about had a heart attack when it kept coming and I thought that was a huge issue um, initially and then Kurt had been gone out of Little Falls for a few years and he started back in Little Falls the year after I did and also recognized that issue. And so our community had realized that we probably did have a little bit of an opioid issue and we had started that community task force. I got involved because of, obviously, the uncomfortable prescribing.
2: I think the other thing uh, is really that we were having overdose deaths and I think that uh, because it's a small community, we knew who those people were. And we were getting roughly, probably one every three months at that time and they were typically 20 to 25 years old and they were people that we knew. Um, and we knew the families. And so I think that most people, I think, faced with that situation, uh, would look at it and say, well, you know, what are we going to do about this? And that's how this all really got going.
1: I don't know. And then I think it just became something that was fun, you know? It, it was fun for us, especially when it came time to, to taking care of patients with opioid use disorder and treating with medication assisted treatment and with Suboxone and seeing people whose lives have turned around and people who have jobs and have families and aren't in jail and aren't losing their kids. I mean, that's what it became all about, and that's where it it got really exciting. Um, When we first were able to start doing that, we we hit a lot of roadblocks. There was a lot of issues, whether it was getting the meds covered or a lot of stigma, which there still is a lot of stigma, of course. And being creative and finding ways around all of it kind of became what we got really good at. And then we got to start expanding into these eight other communities. It was fun to get them excited and to see them get excited about the things we were excited about and to see just the amazing change that's happened across the whole state
2: with all of that. You know, maybe it would be um, a good thing to talk a little bit about what we actually did to decrease the opioids, because I don't think we really mentioned that, but I, you know, one of the things that we did that was uh, probably a little bit different is we were looking for how are we going to manage all of these patients that we know are on opioids and originally there was 1200 patients that were on opioids alone and that did not you know again we're not counting the people on stimulants we're not talking about the people that were on benzodiazepines strictly the opioids and when we looked at that the question is well how are you going to make physicians be better prescribers how are you going to how are you going to make people understand what's safe and what's not safe and uh, it was actually about roughly 10 months before the CDC guidelines came out in March of 2016. And so there was really no guidelines even. And so what we did is we made our own guidelines. And actually we weren't too far off from what the CDC came up with. We, we used slightly different numbers of what we were gonna consider normal or safe. And we decided we were gonna form a team. And at the time the team was myself and Dr. Bell and a nurse, our administrator, and eventually a social worker, who were gonna go through every single chart of every single patient who was on a controlled substance. And uh, I famously said at that meeting that it would be all wrapped up in about six months and then I'd go back to doing what I was doing. And we finished those charts probably- Which is
1: working to retire. Yeah, which is then I could retire.
2: Um, But we finished that after about four years. Uh, So it took a long time. But what we would do when we would review those charts is decide whether or not, first off, the patient had a reason beyond op- opioids or benzos or, or anything, or whether they needed more workup, uh, whether they needed closer evaluation. Uh, we made sure they got their urine testing done because no one was getting that. Uh, we had everybody sign a care plan to make sure that we could look in their charts as a team and make sure that everything was uh, going like it should. And I, I think that really what we found was that number one, a third of those patients, we couldn't figure out why they were on opioids, roughly, uh, which is pretty stunning. But as many of, our, many of you out there know is that now we all have electronic medical records. And during the time that time, people would change records rel- relatively frequently. So uh, five years down the road, you have a different medical record, diagnoses get lost, and pretty soon you don't even know why they're taking the pills. And that happened a lot. Uh, number two reason thing that happened was we found patients who were horribly overdosed even by any standard uh, and we found people who hadn't screened had things in their urine that shouldn't be in their urine uh, like heroin or methamphetamine or, or lots of things so so there was just lots of ways to do this and when we found patients who maybe needed to be on opioids um, yeah you just have to make sure that the dosings are safe and if we find people that we're not sure you need to work them up you need to do the scans you need to do the evaluations get the referrals to really well define their problem
1: um, so so with that it was you know you'd find a patient who was maybe on just way too many too high of dose and then it's really knowing how to have those conversations or talk to their provider about having those conversations sometimes those patients weren't actually taking all of them they might be selling half of it so it's really about educating on the safety of these meds. Opioids for the first two months, we're probably really good at helping your pain. You know, like you have a surgery, you take them for a couple of days, and they do help. But after two months, your pain in two months is gonna be the same as it is today. And it's just gonna keep escalating. And so it was one, educating on that, and then two, you know, if we find people that had the meth or heroin or whatever in their urine, or we found had some type of an issue, it wasn't just the historical, you're fired, kick you out of my clinic, see you later. It was what's going on? How can we help you? Why are you doing this? Do you, do you, are you supplementing your social security by selling your pills, like the elderly patients? Um, or did they really just have a methamphetamine use disorder and we're getting pills to, to be able to afford their meth? and really getting people help, not trying to get them out of the clinic. So really trying to keep the patients just get them healthier.
0: Um, so we touched a little bit, I think, on who the members of each controlled substance care team are. Could you talk a little bit about like maybe what the interplay is between those members and then following that with what does the project look like on a day-to-day
1: basis for any members of the team? So the members now, and our team is a little bit bigger than a lot of the eight communities just because we run it, and so we need an errand. So Most of the care teams have at least one provider, if not a couple providers, that are wavered or not. Some of the communities have one that's wavered and then one who kind of runs the rest of it. Um, A care coordinating nurse, which is a key role, because the patient refills run through that nurse. That's the contact. Patient wants to get on Suboxone. They don't call the regular clinic line. They call the drug line, as we call it, um, to try to get immediate access. And it's just kind of having that consistent person. We have an outreach nurse now to help kind of help these
3: communities. Also, our patient care nurse, she does all of the controlled substance refills that go through this clinic, and that just kind of allows our team to have a really good pulse on identifying patients that potentially need help because their urines aren't appropriate or because they're being over-prescribed medications. So it just gives you a really good look into what's going on in those patients' Right. to make
1: sure that they have had a urine, to yeah. make sure that they've had the care plan updated make sure they've been seen in the clinic in the last year um, we also have a social worker on our care team and some communities do and some communities don't social worker Kurt likes to say is probably the most important person on our team um, and she is because if you find any issues whether it's this person selling or this person needs treatment or they need insurance or XYZ she's the one that kind of comes in and helps with all of the things you find when you're working through patient issues. Um, we still have administration that sits on our team. They kind of just oversee, make new clinic policies
2: as clinic policies come up. Well, I think a lot of that too with the uh, administration. Uh, do we occasionally run into legal questions? Um, and the answer to that is yes. Uh, sometimes it's difficult to know exactly uh, whether you can do what you want to do. and. Again, there's child protection involved sometimes, and uh, we're reported mandated reporters. And so there's issues with that. There's sometimes issues where people are doing things illegal. uh, And we have occasionally had to, uh, through administration, uh, talk with our lawyer uh, to kind of make sure that we're doing things correctly.
1: Well, then we have um, a pharmacy resident who's within our clinic. She's not usually at our meetings right now, just because of the day she's here and the day she's not. Um, But we still use the pharmacy resident or the pharmacist a lot, and every community has a different way they use a pharmacist. But when you find people that need to be tapered on their opioids, whether it's just to a safer dose or to taper off, it's much nicer to have a pharmacist calculate those tapers for you. Um, And they'll calculate a couple different taper plans, so then the patient can have a role in that. She'll sometimes meet with the patients to say, okay, this is why this plan might work, and this is why this plan would be better, and let the patient kind of have some decision Um, in that process. Day-to-day, we meet once a week on Mondays to kind of go through patient cases as they come up. So if a new patient's on a controlled substance that we've either not seen before or a new patient, we have a form that gets filled out by our nurse after a care plan's been signed, and we review the patient chart. To make sure, like Kurt had mentioned, we look through their charts to make sure they've been worked up. Look for safety. Look for other issues. Things come up all the time in the day-to-day, though. Um, as far as like patients calling in wanting to be on Suboxone, they'll come to us like, "Hey, this person's sick. Can you see them right now?" Because that's important. If a person's in withdrawal,
3: you need to see them right now. And so, we're in the hospital or presenting to the ED. You know.
0: Wonderful. Um, So I read a little bit online about Project ECHO. Could you speak to that at all?
2: Um, Do you want us to start at the beginning of where Project ECHO came from? Sure. All right. So Project ECHO was something that came out of New Mexico. And uh, originally, the first uh, ECHO program was actually an ECHO program developed by Sanjeev Arora, who was a, a hepatologist in New Mexico at the University of New Mexico. And basically what was going on was, they had an enormous amount of hepatitis C all over New Mexico. And they had one person treating it in all of New Mexico, and that was Sanjeev. Uh, He had a, I think, a four to six month waiting period. No one could get in, and if they missed their appointment, it was another four to six months to get in. And he realized that he was gonna have to do something uh, to somehow eliminate this backlog and he had one of those aha moments and realized that with the new teleconferencing that maybe what he should do is be training people to do what he did and not just doing telehealth because they wanted to do a one-on-one with people out in rural areas so they didn't have to drive. And his idea was, why don't I teach the providers, including PAs and nurse practitioners in these small communities, to actually treat hepatitis C. And the way he decided to do that was to develop a team at his at his uh facility of experts that then would meet once a week and they would allow rural providers to come on and video conference and they would give a didactic talk each time and then after the talk would actually run through a case that was presented by one of the rural people and uh, they showed over i believe it was over two years uh that they showed the enormous difference it made and the fact that patients no longer had access to care issues and uh that what became of that was then, they looked at all the other applications to this uh, as to what other things could they be doing with this. When we actually started to get involved, uh, we were the second opioid echo in all of the country. Uh, it was just it was just kind of getting going that they were looking at other topics. And so um, opioids became one of those many topics.
1: In the end of two thousand. 17, um, DHS had come to us and said, Hey, we have this idea for this project, Echo. Could you do an Echo on opioids? And so, yeah, we, we were the first, the second opioid in the country, Echo, but we were, we were I think, still one of the only, if the only, rural based one. So, like Kurt mentioned, most of the Echos are out of university health centers or academic health centers where the experts are teaching rural primary care how to do something. So we, as Rural Primary Care, are teaching our Rural Primary Care peers how to do what we do. And so once a week, we log on and we do a very similar, started as just opioids, now we do full addiction stuff. Where we do a little teaching topic, just like the model. Wherever we go, they, you know, we get speakers, so we have different speakers from all over that come on and give a little teaching topic and then present a case, like, like Kurt mentioned. And so we, the average ECHO in the country averages about 20 to 25 people who log on, these expert teams. Um, Our ECHO, our very first one, already had almost 50 people, and we average about 80 people on each week. And it's primary care throughout Minnesota. We have psychiatrists, we have toxicologists, we have people outside of Minnesota, um, Alaska and Louisiana and the East Coast they log in. And it's just really become this really awesome network of people all talking about different opioid topics, different addiction topics, throughout the Minnesota people, it's nice because, you know, you can see these people in the state that are doing things exactly like you, excuse me, exactly like you, so you can give a patient back to where they're from, and um, so that was our
2: first ECHO. Yeah, and I think, you know, really, uh, when you look at the original way ECHO was set up, it was really to be kind of targeted towards providers who are actually out working. And we looked at this and realized that sometimes a lot of the people that were teaching how to do addiction uh, medicine in rural places, maybe physicians who are in the mid part of their career or maybe towards the end of their career. And we started to realize that maybe what we needed to do was maybe target some of these groups uh, like students. And so our first foray into that was actually, uh, in Minnesota, we have a rural physician associate program where third year medical students actually live in small communities for nine months all over the state. And so we just, we reached out to the university of Minnesota where we both went and said, and we were both our PAP students. Why don't we have a, a curriculum of addiction for this particular third year, third year medical student, uh, cohort. Um, and so we actually started that last year, and it was uh, 16 talks, and it was uh, some of the talks by us, some by addiction doctors and addiction psychiatrists, and and it was uh, a pretty big hit. And so we were asked to do it again this year, and that's just started. Um, and it actually wasn't long after that that uh, one of the physician's assistant schools uh, down at Augsburg um, PA school uh, got funding and was looking into this type of a Uh, Thing as well looking to bring addiction to the PA students who you know when you think about it They've only got a year or two and they're out working uh, a lot of them rurally or in areas of underserved uh, that are underserved so uh, They asked us to do the same thing. We actually use that same curriculum We just started uh, our third echo uh, with them just last week And lastly Do you want to do the last week? Well lastly so in Minnesota the
1: the legislature did this huge opioid project where part of what DHS was kind of asked to do was come up with kind of prescribing but guide marks or benchmarks on, you know, appropriate prescribing. And so, they got report cards this year that compare our prescribing to our peers and where if people fall out of that like they're over prescribing or they're they're kind of outside the guidelines or they're way above all those benchmarks then at some point in the next year or two, they're gonna start getting in trouble with the state and made to fix their prescribing. Um, it could get to the point that they might lose the ability to prescribe for state insurances. I mean, that's not the goal. The goal is to get everybody to be prescribing appropriately for you know health and safety reasons. But knowing that people were gonna be outside the guideline, we approached the state and said, how about we do an echo for those prescribers? And so last week, two weeks ago, we started our fourth echo where we kind of started over, and so we're talking more on this echo about the CDC and the state guidelines. This coming week we're doing urine drug screen topics. So it's all like the prescribing guidelines, the prescribing topics, appropriate prescribing, uh, things that might alert you to a patient having addiction, things that patients have that might predispose them to addiction um, or safety issues. And so that is our current
2: fourth echo. So those are the four echoes. I can't think of much right now. We, uh, I believe, our, um, you know, the group. I believe that we that logs in for our usual one is right around 300. A pool of roughly 300 people. Mm-hmm. Over 300 it's between three and 400 people. A, a pool and depending on the talk, different people come. We have certain speakers who, who, who historically draw more than 150 people. And so those those are certainly some of the biggest echoes in the country. Are um, our new report card echo had 50 people the first day we put it on so uh it was higher than 50. so yeah so these are topics i think people really want to hear and obviously the people that are listening to this will make sure that you get the email so that you can uh, check us out and, and learn more about addiction
1: i think one of the the big things that we try to you know teach in both the pilot the communities and then the echo is that One, obviously the whole stigma thing and breaking that down and whether it's prescribing or it's addiction is that these are just obviously people and to really be aware that they are everywhere. And so we've touched on emergency rooms when it comes to opioid prescribing the emergency room and addiction treatment out of the ER. We've talked about the jails. We were the first jail in Minnesota to treat patients with Suboxone in the jail. Um, We deliver babies with moms on Suboxone in our small critical access hospital and those babies so far haven't needed withdrawal treatments yet. Um, We've just developed protocols around all of these things to really help patients kind of just lead their best lives rather than having to get shuffled around or judged or whatever. And so a lot of what we do is teach on that, go around and teach on that and try to get people to care about what we care about.
2: You know, I think probably if I was going to pick one of the biggest goals of our of all of our programs was to, to make access to care for for opioid addiction a rural, um, really a rural reality. And and I think we've somehow uh, finagled roughly sixty people into doing this in rural Minnesota. When previously north of the metro uh, Minneapolis Saint Paul, there was maybe one or two people, and now there's roughly. Fifty to sixty, out in rural Minnesota, in rural Minnesota which uh, is huge. When you think of even if they take care of ten or fifteen people each, that's five or six hundred people that had care that did not have care before.
1: This is care where people were driving hours to the Twin Cities if they even could get in, or they were having to go to methadone clinics, or they just kept using. They just kept using, and so I think between our eight communities and then our Echo Community, Greater Echo Community, what do we calculate? And then our patients. We're at over 500 patients that are
3: getting care in their local communities now. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. In Go ahead. addition to these really large ECHOs that they are running, they also provide for the legislative pilot sites, like a provider meeting so they can touch base, a nurse support meeting so you can just help people that have boots on the ground, you know run through problems that they're encountering with insurance and prior us or funding issues or you know the practicalities and the foundational aspects of the program so that's really helped i think get other people going yeah,
1: yeah. well and i think <clears throat> just because sort started talking made me think of what aaron does i mean we've always i think when it came to help you know dealing with the opioid epidemic looked at it as you know we could all just go out and do narcan And that'd be great, and Narcan's needed. And we could all just do a bunch of prevention programs, and that's great, you need it. But you kind of need to do all of it simultaneously. And so that's kind of always been our goal. You know, like, we'll hit the ER, we'll hit the jail, we'll hit the OB, we'll hit prevention. So Erin does a lot of school prevention stuff. So she goes to middle schools, high schools, we do prevention talks. We've done, one of our patients and I have gone to a couple different high schools and done prevention talks. Um, We've done Narcan trainings. Um, we actually the same patient runs a Suboxone support group here in Little Falls for our patients on Suboxone because there's even stigma amongst people in recovery, and so we really tried to hit all areas of the epidemic because you can't just do one thing.
2: Yeah, and I, and I think in addition to all of those things, uh, we put on trainings for buprenorphine. So um, and actually just coming up, we're doing one for people who do obstetrics, and uh, that was. Uh, we got a call from a state group that wants to put on one and train people, uh, especially rural physicians, family practice doctors doing obstetrics, uh, teach them how to take care of patients on suboxone because it's coming so it's becoming so common. So, you know, I mean, there's just so many ways to to get involved that I think people uh, listening to the podcast like, man, you can, there's just so many ways for you to help.
0: So we also touched on this a little bit at the beginning, kind of how rewarding it can be, especially in a small community, when you know a lot of the patients or you know of their families, when you see kind of a success story and a turnaround of somebody's life, but maybe in addition to that, what do you think that this program has done for the community of Little Falls? Yeah,
2: let me say first that, that before it becomes rewarding, it's disturbing. You know, when and I delivered a lot of babies for 20 years, and when, and when patients come back or they die, uh, and they're somebody that you've known since birth, I think that's disturbing and i think that that's what makes you think you know we need to do something and i think uh in on the other aspect boy when you take one of those patients and you turn them around and they get their life back yeah i mean that's as rewarding as probably anything we've ever done and i deliver a lot of babies and i, I think that still this is just as rewarding uh to see somebody get a job again to have a baby to uh, get married uh, which is we got one coming up in our in our group who's getting married. And it's exciting um, to see him go back to school. Be um, you know. a nurse in your clinic. Yeah, or be a nurse in our clinic. Uh, we have one of our patients who's a nurse in our clinic now. So so yeah, I don't think I don't think it takes, you know, something that huge to be rewarding. Sometimes it's uh, going a whole three months without having them have a lapse. That can be pretty rewarding. And it can make somebody feel pretty proud of what they've done.
1: But I think another, even when you look at just the prescribing thing, when the police say it's hard to find a pill on the streets in Little Falls because we've worked on the over-prescribing. I mean, that's rewarding. When you look at the jail numbers and the people in and out of the jail, the, the amount of people there with heroin or opioid issues has plummeted and the recidivism rates and we have all that in all of our patients, that's gone down, that's rewarding. And I don't know, you see people have their kids back and those are kids that are no longer in foster care that's rewarding it's all very rewarding we were just in a different community today and one of my patients happens to be like was there in the parking lot came gave me a big hug and just to say hi and one of the other providers in that community who's nearing the end of her career is thinking about getting into this because she just wants something to really make a difference before she's retiring it's just Mm kind of cool
0: so it seems like each year and each month, it seems like this project keeps growing and growing. What does the future of this project look for you in the next year, five years, ten years?
1: We like to go places and give this talk. Like, we have a talk that we give, and it's fun, and it's, we've given it a million times. We change it every time. We make fun of each other the whole way through it every time. But it's when you go to another community or another state or another area, and you get to get people excited about it, and so in – March, we are going to Illinois to talk to the Illinois Hospital Association to give the talk, which will be super fun. And then the day after, we're going to Michigan for two days and doing a boot camp, so a training for a bunch of people in Michigan, um, which will be also very fun. But I think our long dream goal, and this is a good thing to say. Good morning, America. Oh, gosh, yeah. If I could in good morning, America, if y'all have connections, please... (laughs) Email the uh, show. Email the show. <laughs> <laughs> My cell phone, I'm just kidding. Um, would be this, this program that we affectionately call the 50 States of Change. We've always said it would be great to, to be able to train crazy people in every state to be us in every state, to find a clinic in every state that would just do what we do, and then at some point let them free to like be us in their state. And the likelihood of that being exact is not good, only because, you know, every state or everybody is doing something. It's just the programs that we have developed, and there's a manual that literally walks you through this whole thing that we've written. It works, and it clearly works in other communities and across our state.
0: Um, yeah, I think we'll just kind of try to tie it back into some of our listeners that are medical students. What advice do you have for students who are interested in pursuing a career, maybe in substance use or in a career that they could, basically any field nowadays you would encounter in substance use. Just what advice do you have for students that are getting ready to begin their careers? Don't be
3: judgy. Don't be judgy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Don't be, yeah. Don't Don't just don't be <laughs> open. There's reasons why a lot of times that. look at people as how can we help you not why did you do that yeah and I think you know
1: you know addiction is a new field like you can do an addiction fellowship now which literally just started and it's a neat kind of niche to have and you can do you know go into it from family medicine from internal medicine from med you can do that fellowship and you can bring that back to small communities but you don't have to you could just substance use is so broad and, you know, it, it it impacts every aspect of medicine. And I think for people who are interested in it, especially as students, to really pay attention and to learn what you can because, you know, like Erin said, it impacts everybody, it has some connection to it in some way, shape, or form. And to really get educated about it makes Everything's so much easier. You know, whether you're in residency and you're seeing a person who is an IV drug user. I mean, I had a guy that was recurrent throughout all of my residency. And I can tell you, if I were to encounter him today, I would be way better as a doctor with him today. And I think about that sometimes, like compared to how I looked at him then. You know, and I think it's important to really be open-minded and just, you know, care about people.
2: I mean, I think that that if you think about doing any kind of primary care, uh, you see people with mental health issues. And if you see people with mental health issues, whether it's depression, anxiety, and especially bipolar disorder or anything, which is a part of every primary care, right? You are already seeing addiction. And the only thing that you might be doing is ignoring it because you may have half of those people who have uh, substance use disorders And uh, you're gonna have people with all different types of uh, use disorders. So you're already seeing them. And the question is, do you you wanna treat them for what some of the real problem is? Uh, Or are you just gonna focus on their mental health and forget that that's a group that has a super high incidence of of substance use disorders? And so I think getting that extra education, and and in a way, uh, it's confusing to me how little there is, uh, again, when I went through, there was zero. Uh, when Dr. Bell went through, there was not much. Um, and even now, when you compare it to, you know, some of the disorders that we see that we get training for, uh, which are extremely uncommon, uh, when you look at substance use disorders, that, that you know, tens or twenties percent of people have, and we are unable to really decide what to do with them uh, because we haven't had that training. So I would say get that training uh, seek it out, uh, get it as CME, uh, get it as things like our echo where you learn, where you learn this kind of thing. Uh, and again, the addiction fellowships, I think if you want to really do something for a small town, go back to it as a primary care, also doing addiction medicine.
0: As mentioned in the episode, the providers and staff involved in this program host weekly virtual teleconferences as part of the University of New Mexico's Project ECHO with the goal of educating other rural clinics on opioid and controlled substance topics. Included in the description of this episode is the email to contact if you are interested in having access to these video conferences.